<laughs> okay. Alrighty. Um, let's see here where we're going to go tonight. Um, you know, in some past lessons, I shared with you some personal things that happened in my life. Specifically, I shared a few nights on the human heart. And I applied that to my personal life and some things that God did in my life and where I was. There were some events in my early ministry life they were devastating to me. And they left me asking the question, why? Why me? Why at this time? What did I do? I don't deserve this. And you know, likely you've been there at some time or another in your life. I mean, you just didn't have any answers. But you had the question, why? We were caught in a storm that we could not fathom. Do you remember what your feelings were at the time? I mean, you may have felt rejected. You may have felt helpless. You may have felt ashamed, afraid, bitter. So many emotions go on. You may have got angry, fearful. And likely, you felt uncertainty of the future. For me, the storm in my life left wounds. They left hurt, pain, even left some scars. And emotionally, I was a wreck. I tried a pity party. Uh, that didn't work. Didn't find any answers there. Didn't take long to figure out that wasn't going to fix me. But thank the Lord I had enough faith I went on a spiritual journey, and all I was looking for was for a refuge. Now, that's easy to say. It was difficult to do at the time. But in time, and it took a lot of time, my faith directed me to the holiness of God. I had never felt so alone in my life. And yet, in time, as my journey was coming to an end, I found myself in awe of God's absolute holiness. And for me, it was a life-changing experience. I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God that I believe in and the God that I worship. My spiritual drought ended, but the taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst that much more for Him. And I could identify with the words of David when he said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, that leads me to this. The greatest commandment of all, Jesus said, is to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Matthew 22, 37 and 38. You know, I'd memorize those words. I'd preach those words. But I had really never thought about what those words meant in practical terms. 
That is, how do we fulfill the command to love the Lord with all of our heart? And I wondered if others felt the same way. So one night while I was teaching a class um, in my school, the International School of Evangelism at the time, I asked the students that were there to just, we stopped with what we were teaching, and I asked them to take out a sheet of paper, uh, don't write your name on it, just a blank sheet of paper, and I want you in your own words to respond the best you can in a personal way, what does it mean for you to love God? Well, uh, they did that. I took up the, uh, uh, the papers and we went on about teaching the class. That night when I got home, I couldn't wait to look at the responses. I kind of wondered, you know, what am I going to discover? Well, I found all kinds of answers. I uh, remember one said, I love God by loving Him. Hmm. Another said, well, I maintain a worshipful heart. And somebody else wrote, by offering myself as a sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. And another went on about to describe their daily uh, Bible reading and devotional. That's how they love God. I got a strange one. Their sheet of paper, paper said, uh, let me think about it. <laughs> and faithful church attendance and tithing, well, they were way up there on the list. And then some talked about a feeling. Now, they didn't describe the feeling, but they talked about a feeling that they got. And then I remember someone else mentioned, well, uh, their prayer language. That's how they love God. So I thought, is this what Jesus was saying? Do we know how to love God? Now, my spirit man was drunk. That is, drunk on much learning. And I question as an individual believer, and thus the church, do we view our faith as some magnificent philosophy? Or do we view our faith as a living truth? Is my faith just an academic theory? Or is it a, a, a person, a living person, whom I'm prepared to lay down my life for. You see, the church will never be the force that Christ died for unless we truly love Him and we act on that love. And we can pray for revival until we're blue in the face. But nothing really big is going to happen. There's not going to be an awakening until the church realizes and becomes the force that Christ died for and we truly love Him and act on that love. Now, in my biblical studies, I remember well reading the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That was the well-known German pastor. The statement that he made was this, Only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. It would take me years. Honestly, it would take me decades to realize and understand those prophetic words. You see, life can be a paradox. There was a time when I was so low, I could sit on a Kleenex and dangle my legs. I mean, I'd reach the bottom. Yes, 
You probably didn't know that. But I had reached the bottom in my ministry. I'd reached the bottom in my personal life. And I'd reached the bottom professionally. I had up to this time just gloried in my education, gloried in the opportunities. And yet the man in the mirror was a failure. And it was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the experiences that I could not glory in in order to glory Him. Now, a discussion of those experiences is not going to benefit anyone. But, the question is, what did I learn? And this is the important thing. I learned that it's not what we do that matters, but it's what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. That's what matters. You know, God doesn't want our success. He's not demanding our achievements. What God demands is our obedience. And Jesus said it so well when He said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And so the kingdom of God is a kingdom of paradox, where through the ugly defeat of a cross, a holy God is utterly glorified. Victory comes through defeat. Healing comes through brokenness. Finding ourselves comes through losing self. Our success, mad, egocentric culture cannot seem to grasp this crucial truth. And it's only understandable when the false values that obsess us are stripped away, sometimes in the midst of our most abject failures. And that was so in my life. And it was so in the life of a man by the name of Boris Cornfield. And it's really his story that I want to share with you tonight of what it means to love God. Who was Boris Cornfield? Boris Cornfield was a Russian doctor. And what we can know about him can only be pieced together with a fragment here and a fragment there and from someone who knew him quite well. His story, though, has been a source of incredible inspiration to me. No prisoners have, uh, reporters have visited visited the prison camps of Soviet Russia unless they've gone as a prisoner. And we know little about the millions who lived, who suffered, and who died there, especially during Stalin's reign of terror. But Cornfield was a medical doctor. His parents were socialists. They had fastened their hope on Lenin's revolution. They were also Jews, but not the kind of Jews that were looking for the Messiah. And it was natural for these Russian Jews to support Lenin's revolution. And why was that? Because the czars that preceded Lenin, well, they expressed this vicious anti-Semitism toward Jews. And they made life almost unendurable for the prior 200 years. Socialism comes along in the presence of Lenin, and it offers something much better for them than so-called Christian Russia did. You see, Christian Russia had slaughtered the Jews. Perhaps atheistic Russia, well, perhaps it would save them. Now, we don't know what crime Dr. Cornfield, uh, what he did, what he committed, 
We only know that it was a political crime. Perhaps he dared one day to suggest that somehow Stalin was less than fallible. Anyway, it took less than that to become a prisoner in the Russian gulag in the early 1950s. And many died for a whole lot less. Ironically, it just took a few years behind the barbed wire and thoughtful men like Boris Cornfield found themselves evaluating the beliefs that they had held since childhood. And Cornfield not only abandoned all of these socialistic ideals, he did something that would have horrified his family. Boris Cornfield became a Christian. Now, while few Jews anywhere in the world would find it easy to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, a Russian Jew would find it much more difficult. And why is that? Again, for two centuries, 200 years, these Jews experienced only implacable hatred from the very people who they were told well, they're the most Christian of all. And thus it was that Boris Cornfield, he came, he came into contact with a devout Christian. It was a well-educated, kind fellow prisoner. He spoke of a Jewish Messiah. And he talked about this Jewish Messiah had come to keep the promises that the Lord had made to the nation of Israel. This Christian, whose name we do not know, he pointed out that Jesus had spoken almost entirely or solely to the Jewish people. And he proclaimed that Jesus had come to speak to the Jews first. As this devout Christian prisoner went about his prison confinement, he often recited aloud the Lord's Prayer. And Boris Cornfield heard in those words a strange ring of truth. You see, the camp had stripped Cornfield of everything, including his belief in salvation through socialism. And now this man comes along and he offers him hope. But in what form? You see, to accept Jesus Christ, to become one of those who had always persecuted his people, well, that seemed a betrayal of all who had gone before him. Cornfield knew the Jews had suffered innocently. He knew that he had suffered innocently. He knew the Jews were innocent. Innocent in the days of the Tsars. And he was innocent of betraying Stalin. He had been imprisoned unjustly. But unexpectedly he began to see the powerful parallels between the Jews and Jesus. And though a prisoner... Cornfield lived in better conditions than most who were behind the wire. You see, other prisoners were expendable. Doctors, well, they were scarce. And guards, as well as prisoners, needed medical attention. No prison officer wanted to end up at the hands of a doctor that he had cruelly abused. So, while in prison, Cornfield developed a burning hatred for the guards. He came to despise those who were his persecutors. His deep desire was to slaughter them all. But one day he found himself unconsciously repeating the words that he had heard from his fellow Christian prisoner. 
The words that he heard were, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Strange words coming out of the mouth of a Jew. And yet, he couldn't help but just keep repeating them. And having seen his own evil heart, he had to pray for cleansing, and he had to pray to a God who had suffered as he had, and that God was Jesus. For some time, Boris Cornfield just simply continued praying the Lord's Prayer. While he went about his back-breaking work, his hopeless task as a camp doctor, he stood ineffectively against the tide that was gating on each prisoner. There was uh, cold, there was disease, there was overwork, there were beatings, there were malnutrition. And doctors in the camp medical section, they also were asked to sign decrees. Decrees for imprisonment in the solitary block. So any prisoner that the authorities wanted to get rid of or they just wanted to get out of, out of the way, well, they sent them to this cold, dark, torture cell uh, called uh, the soli- uh, in solitary confinement. And a doctor's signature on the forms is all that it took. It certified that the prisoner was strong and healthy enough that he could withstand the punishment. And this was, of course, a lie. Few emerged alive from solitary confinement in the punishment block. But like all the other doctors, Cornfield had signed his share of the forms. I mean, what was the difference? They didn't need them to sign the forms anyway. They had a way of legalizing punishment or to get someone out of the way if they wanted to. But a doctor wouldn't cooperate. Well, they wouldn't last long anyway, even though doctors were scarce. But shortly after Cornfield begins to pray for forgiveness, he stopped authorizing the punishment. He refused to sign any more forms. Now, this rebellion was bad enough, but Cornfield didn't stop there. He turned in an orderly. The orderlies were drawn from a group of prisoners, and they cooperated with the authorities. And as a reward for their cooperation, they were given jobs in the camp, which were, well, they were less than a death sentence. They became the cooks, the bakers, the uh, clerks, the hospital orderlies. The other prisoners, they hated them almost as much as they hated the guards. And why was that? Because these prisoners were traitors. They could never be trusted. They stole food from the other prisoners, and they would gladly kill anyone who tried to report them or to give them trouble. People died in the camp every day. So while making his rounds one day, Cornfield came to one of the many patients who were suffering from pellagra. Malnutrition-induced pellagra made digestion almost impossible. What happened? Well, the victims literally starved to death. The man's body showed the ravages of the disease. His face had become just one dark bruise. The skin was peeling off of his hands. And they had to be bandaged in order to stop the incessant bleeding. Cornfield had been given this patient chalk, good white bread, and erring. Those were used in the camp 
to stop the diarrhea and to get nutrients into the blood. But this man was far too gone. When the doctor asked the dying patient his name, the man could not remember it. But just after leaving the patient, Cornfield comes upon this orderly, and there he is bent over the remains of a loaf of the white bread that was being used for the pellagra patients. He looks up shamelessly. His jaws are filled with the bread stuffed into his mouth. Now, Cornfield had known about the stealing, but his vivid memory of this dying man whose room that he had just left, it just pierced him all the way through. It cut him like a knife. He could just no longer shrug his shoulders and move on. Now, of course, he couldn't blame all the deaths in the camp simply on the theft of food. And then he had to perform surgery under conditions that were so primitive that often the operations were, well, nothing or little more than a mercy killing. So, should he retaliate? What would the orderly be capable of? The doctor had to be obedient to what he now believed. And once again, the changes in his life was beginning to make a difference. When Cornfield uh, reported the orderly to the commandant, the officer found it his complaint very curious. There had been a recent rash of murders in the camp, and each victim, well, they had been a stooly. The commandant, well, he put the orderly in the punishment block. He left him there for three days. The doctor thus arranged for his own execution. Poor Boris Cornfield, he knew his days were numbered. And so the doctor began staying in the prison hospital. Here he was living in a strange twilight world where any moment might be his last. But paradoxically, along with the anxiety, came tremendous freedom. I mean, having accepted the possibility of death, Boris Cornfield was now free to live. He, he signed no more papers, sending men to their deaths. He sent, he, he realized that the anger and the bitterness and the hatred that it had consumed his soul, well, that had vanished. And he wondered if there lived another man in Russia who experienced such, uh, freedom as he did. The Christian who had talked to him about Jesus had been transferred to another camp. And so the doctor waited for the right moment and really the right person to tell of his conversion. One gray afternoon, he examined a patient who had been operated on for cancer of the intestines. The young man with a melon-shaped head, a little boy expression on his face, it somehow touched the soul of the doctor. The man's eyes were sorrowful, they were suspicious, and his face was deeply etched by the years that he had already spent in the camp. It reflected a deep depth of misery and emptiness that Cornfield had rarely seen in a patient. So Cornfield, he began talking to the patient. He described what had happened to him. And once the tale of his conversion began to spill out, he couldn't stop. The patient drifted in and out of the anesthesia. All through the afternoon, though, and late into the night, the doctor talked. 
He described to him his conversion to Christ and his newfound freedom. Then, Cornfield confessed to the patient, On the whole, I've become convinced that there is no punishment that comes to us which is undeserved. Can you imagine that? The persecuted Jew who once believed himself totally innocent, now saying that he deserved his suffering? Whatever it was, the patient knew he was listening to an incredible story, an incredible conversion. And though from the pain of the operation was severe, his stomach was just a heavy, expansive agony of molten lead, he hung on to the doctor's words until he fell asleep. The young patient awoke early the next morning to the sound of running feet and a commotion in the area of the operating room. His first thought was, well, the doctor will be here soon. And he couldn't wait to hear the details replayed again of the doctor's conversion. But his new friend did not come. Then the whispers of a fellow patient told him of Cornfield's fate. During the night, while the doctor slept, someone had crept up beside him and dealt him eight blows on the back of the head with a plaster's mallet. And though his fellow doctors worked valiantly to save him, in the morning, while the orderlies carried him out, a still broken form. But Boris Cornfield's testimony did not die. The patient pondered the doctor's last impassioned words. And as a result, he too became a Christian. He survived the prison camp. And he went on to tell the world what he had learned there. The patient's name was Alexander Sosinson, 1970 Nobel Prize winner for literature and one of the most famous Soviet dissidents, outspoken critic of communism and socialism. He raised awareness of Soviet war crimes, human right abuses, and the gulag concentration camp system. Boris Cornfield is the great paradox personified. A Jew who betrayed the faith of his fathers. A doctor whose years of training were senselessly wasted. A political idealist whose utopian vision led only to a barren Siberian prison. A prisoner who gave up his life for nothing more than a loaf of stolen bread. In every one of these areas, Boris Cornfield was a failure, at least in the world system of values. And yet God took that failure of a man and through his obedience used him to lead to Christ another who would go on to become a prophetic voice and one of the world's most influential writers. God has a sovereign purpose for every life. Cornfield's brief Christian life would gain him nothing except that which came in the end, a brutal death at the hands of his captors. And yet Cornfield's faith was strong, sure, and sincere. What God demanded of him was obedience. 
obedience no matter what. And that lesson of the Russian doctor's life has been paramount in my life. You see, what God wants from His people is obedience. No matter what the circumstances and no matter how unknown the outcome. Knowing how susceptible that we are to the world's applause for our success. You know, God often does not allow us to see and therefore glory in what is done through us. The obedience that God demands is that it be given without regard to circumstances or to results. And it's always been this way. God calling His people to obedience and to give them but just a glimpse of the outcome of their efforts. I mean, think through the Bible. You can begin with the days of Noah. What kind of a promise did he have? Just being obedient to God. And then there was Abraham. And you know these people and their stories. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha. The prophets. And then we come to, uh, to the twelve apostles. To those uh, early women that supported Jesus' ministry. To John the Baptist. And then the early church martyrs. See, the Bible makes clear, and experiences such as cornfields confirm that unquestioning acceptance of and obedience to Jesus' authority is the foundation of the Christian life. Everything rests upon this. And it also provides the key to understanding what for many is the great mystery of Christianity. And what is that mystery? The Word of Faith. You see, saving faith, that by which we are justified, we are acquitted, we're made right with God, that's a gift from God. But practically speaking, how does my faith become real? And how do I get that powerful, overcoming, strong faith of Christian maturity? And that's where obedience comes in. For maturing faith, faith which deepens and grows as we live the Christian life, well, that's not just knowledge. That's what I depended on for so long. It's knowledge acted upon. It's knowledge believed. It's lived out. It's practiced. And that's what James said, that we're to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. How many times has Randy stressed that in his teaching So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the individual, the German pastor that I alluded to earlier, he was martyred also in a Nazi concentration camp. But he he stated this crucial interrelationship. Only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. Now, would you agree? It's absurd for Christians to constantly seek new demonstrations of God's power. I mean, to want a miraculous answer to every little need. From an ingrown toenail to finding me a parking space. I mean, does this not lead to faith in a miracle rather than faith in a Creator? 
True faith doesn't depend upon mysterious signs, celestial fireworks, grandiose dispensations of a God who's just seen as some rich, benevolent uncle. True faith, as Job understood it, rests on the assurance of who God is. And on that we must be able to stake our very lives. Job said it so clearly at the end of his trial when he said, I had heard about you before, but now I have seen you. Job 42 and 5. And there was a time when 11 men did just that. They staked their lives in obedience to their leader, even when doing so was contrary to all human wisdom. And that act of obedience produced a faith that emboldened them to stand against the world and in their lifetimes to change it forever. So, we started out with me. So, from my world being turned upside down, staring at defeat, staring at humiliation, but then to be empowered, to be changed radically, I began to take in the truth that I would preached. And for, it, for me, it was the Bible that confronted me. It confronted me of a new awareness of my sin and the need to repent. And it was the Bible that called me to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to seek holiness. And it was the Bible that called me into fellowship with His suffering. And it's the Bible that continues to challenge my life today. To know what it is to love God with all of my heart. I can identify with Boris Cornfield so clearly. Wise in the ways of the world, powerful, steeped in the good life. And he was by all appearances successful and satisfied with himself and his life. There he was, 31. I was 33. Young man on the move. And yet his life was changed radically by the Word of God. Learning life's great lesson is to learn to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart. I hope now we'll all be better equipped to answer the question, what does it mean to love God? I'm not going to give you a sheet of paper. Let's pray. Father, Father, we're here for a reason. The needs and the darkness are great. But your power and your light are even greater. Father, here's a group of people who long to serve you. To walk in obedience no matter what. They, they desire to be a part of your great end time revival. So help us to make the most of every opportunity that we have that others might not walk away without experiencing you. My life is yours, and you are mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to have communion tonight.